Well, one of the things I love about YouTube is I share my ideas out there in the open and you guys get to evaluate them, critique them, think about them, push back against them and ask questions about what it is that I say. And I kind of love this. It's, a, it's, man, it's, it's hard because, well, uh, and then podcasting too, if you're listening on podcast, uh, it's hard though, because, you know, it, it causes you to, to be more careful, which is a good thing, right? Teachers, as scripture says, are held to a higher standard. I know this is a high school teacher as well of, of making sure I get things right and really thinking things through and figuring out how to explain it well. And it kind of puts that, I think a really good pressure that we don't just go out on the internet and flippantly say things that then we're maybe going to later regret or that we're not sure are even true. And so there's kind of an extra standard, so to speak, in, in jumping into conversations and presenting information on here, which is also why I haven't made a video in the last few weeks because, well, time has just been tight and I don't want to just put something out there that really is poorly done. And so I want to think through issues and give you some decent thoughts. Uh, but what I love, again, as as well as putting on this, I love interacting with you. And, and I miss out on this because, you know, in my high school classes, I get to interact with students every single day. They push back against my ideas sometimes and ask questions and want to go deeper. And, and it's really fun getting that interaction. And you just don't have that on YouTube and podcasts uh, as much as I would like. And so I always want to try to get interaction and uh, like with most of my shows, you can call into the show if you want, if you forget this. Um, I have a call-in option where you can call in with your voice, have a little conversation with me. Uh, you All you have to do is text my Google Voice number, 714-989-6927. I'll send you a link and then you can join the conversation and have a little bit more of that back and forth. Um, but what I love is when people comment in on the comment sections on videos and raise objections, raise concerns, raise questions, and uh, give me a chance to kind of maybe explain myself a little bit better or to address issues that I didn't get a chance to address. I love this kind of dialogue. It is so much better than assuming someone means something that they didn't really mean or because someone left something out that they don't know what they're talking about or something like that. Instead of assuming the worst, we ask questions and I love the chance. And so one thing I love doing here and what we're going to do today, and this is a long introduction, but what we're going to do today is work through a comment that came in on a video I made back in January of 2000. 21, so just over a year ago, on how the sexual kind of revolution has hurt us and how we've been affected by that and why this idea that we often hear in our culture, love is love, isn't love. And so I have a whole video uh, addressing that question. And, and then on that came this question, which is what we are going to address today, talking about Sexual boundaries. We recognize there is a line that needs to be drawn. There are boundaries as to what we would uh, agree are good and bad. The question is, where do we draw that line? And so I want to try to help you think through this uh, today. Um, if you're joining for the first time, my name is Ryan Polly. It is my goal to help you think well about Christianity. I want to help you think deeply about what Christians believe, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. There's some really fun, exciting news as far as uh, things coming up, and I'll make an official announcement soon, but I'm kind of turning this into um, an official ministry. So rather than just kind of a side hobby that I'm going to be doing, I've been working on paperwork, paperwork the last few weeks, uh, turning this into an official ministry, which I am calling Think Well. And so there's kind of a little double meaning there is uh, I want to train you how to think well to address 
the issues of Christianity and culture and ethics and values and all that kind of stuff. But also I kind of see myself as someone who wants to expose you to not only the deep well of Christian knowledge, but also like the deep well of Christian thinkers and people out there who are thinking through all these issues. And so I do a lot of interviews on my show, if you've not been here before, trying to expose you to those Christian thinkers out there and training you and helping you think well about Christianity, culture, and all the issues that we have to think about. So that has always been my goal, and I'm kind of excited to move forward in this, and I will definitely give you more information later as more becomes official. Uh, but again, so today, uh, jumping back into that uh, conversation. Yes, yeah, Slam, welcome, Slam. Good to see you here. Uh, yeah, think well is what I went with. So um, again, the, the the video that prompted all of this uh, was the video that I did back in January 2021. You can go back and click on that. I think, I, I don't know if I put that in the description below on YouTube, but if it's not there, I will put it there. And, um, and kind of explaining uh, how I teach my high school students about this idea of one of the big issues of the sexual revolution is, and one of the cultural consequences of it is confusion. We are a very confused culture because everyone draws a line somewhere. Right? We, we don't have this love is love, free kind of sex and do whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, it, it's not just as long as you love each other, go for it. Everyone draws a line somewhere. Now, the most basic point in which our culture is going to draw that line is something like consent. Right? You have to have consent. It is wrong to rape someone. You need their consent first. But no one really stops there either, because then you say, well, what if a 40-year-old consented with a 10-year-old? Well, you can't do that. You have to be old enough. So now we've drawn the line of consent. We've added to that line age. You have to be a certain age. Then you say, well, okay, well, what if a 40-year-old mom consented with her 20-year-old son? They're both older than 18. Uh, and why is 18, by the way? Who gets to make up what age is old enough? But then you add uh, someone who's related, like a mother and son or a brother and sister who's 35 and 30. What if they consent? Most people say, well, no, they're related. So you say, okay, you need consent, you need a certain age, and you can't be related. And you say, okay, so what if it's non-related, everyone's over 21 or 18, and uh, but a man has 10 wives? What, if, what about polygamy? And it's like, well, no, not polygamy. It can only be two people, right? And so notice when it comes to kind of sex and marriage, we 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 are constantly adding things into this line. We're creating this line and saying, no, there's a boundary. This stuff is outside. This is not okay. This stuff is inside. And so that original video that I did really kind of worked through that and tried to show you, look, everyone has a line. If someone is going to come against a Christian and say, how dare you draw a line? Let people have freedom and do what they want. Kelly, good to see you. Uh, you can be like, well, look, so you don't have a line? Really? You believe... Anytime, any place, any reason with anyone? Well, no, everyone is going to draw a line somewhere. And so then the question becomes, why there? And in that video, we walk through uh, a biblical case for why the line is drawn at one man, one woman together for one life uh, in that kind of context of marriage. And so we talked about, and I mentioned, and I kind of worked through that the biblical view where that line is, sex inside marriage between one man and one woman, good. Any other type of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman would be wrong. And that is the biblical sexual ethic. And so the question that came in here is kind of working through and like, but why is that the biblical sexual 
ethic. And this person uh, posted and, and commented uh, kind of two responses or kind of two issues that they saw with my argument. So that is what we're going to be working through. There's kind of the, the background, the context and, and everything that's going on. And so I want to kind of work through this. And so I have a screenshot of the conversation here that I'm going to bring up on the screen. So if you're listening on podcast, sorry, you got to watch on YouTube. <laughs> uh, but here we go. Let's see. It starts right there. All right. Thank you. Uh, for talking about this topic, there are two issues, at least with your argument, maybe they can be worked out. So number one, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, Paul says it would be better to be single like he was. However, if women and men become dominated by their passions, then it would be better to get married. I believe that you use 2 Peter 2 to say that desires of the flesh are to be dominated, that we can desire to cheat on a test, but we should refrain from doing so. A person may have a desire for same-sex person, but he should he or she should refrain. Traditionally, I don't hear pastors preaching to stay celibate as Paul recommended. I don't hear Christian parents giving that advice. When I ask heterosexual friends, why don't pastors and parents teach that? I usually hear from straight people, well, because we can't refrain from our sexual desires. So straight people can't refrain from their desires, and Paul gives them a pass. However, homosexual don't get a pass on their desire. What if they were in a monogamous, loving, giving Christian relationship. And so that's the end of the first part of this comment that we're going to work through. So uh, let me jump in here as 1 Corinthians is mentioned, and let's look at 1 Corinthians. Boom, there we go. Okay. So um, 1 Corinthians says it's better to be single. Yes, this is true. We look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 8, and 9, as you say there, it's the unmarried and the widows. I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot resist... uh, or if they cannot exercise self-control, they should should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And now I did mention, and this is a really kind of, I think, a, a one little maybe confusion and maybe my argument, I'm trying to kind of work this out for you as asked for, is when we look at, for example, 1 Peter, did I not bring up 1 Peter in my notes? I didn't. Here, let me bring this up here really quick. 1 Peter Uh, when I mentioned First uh, Peter, um, the verse was, oh, I don't have the verse here. I forget what verse I used in First Peter. Oh, no, I didn't bring it up, and now I, I'm losing it. All right. Um, right, but First Peter does have this idea of talking about this idea of with with withholding with or, or not always acting out on our desires. Of course, it's not coming up right there. Okay. Anyways, I thought it was like verse 11. Oh yeah, there it is. It is verse 11. Why didn't I just look right at verse 11? There we go. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what's important, I think, to recognize here is when it's talking about this is is to live in a way that even kind of the outside world is like, look, you you are living rightly. And I think one of the the, the confusions and that we're going to get to as we work through this post, and I think is an important point to recognize, is that in my view is when I'm talking about First Peter 2, and when I mentioned this before, is that all people, all of us, myself included, right, we are called to abstain from wrong desires. And so even uh, even as Paul is is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that uh, this is not uh, uh, um, uh, ignored or, or it does not go away once someone is married, 
right? It's not like, oh, well, you can't control yourself. Just get married and then you can do whatever you want, right? There are still ways in which a married person has to practice self-control. Um, and so it is not this like free reign to do whatever you want, whenever you want, because you don't have self-control, that even before marriage and after marriage, we are called to practice that self-control and to do only that which is right. The difference here in, in this question of why do uh, straight people kind of get the pass and homosexual people don't, and that is because, as we'll talk about here in a moment, God has designed sex to happen inside of marriage as a man and a woman. And so that type of sexual behavior inside the marriage of a man and a woman, biblically speaking, is not wrong behavior. And so then you can enter into that appropriate context as a straight couple, as it mentions here, and you are not doing anything wrong. So you are not needing to control that desire because that desire now is in its proper context, right? So, you know, the common example is like, you know, fire inside of the fireplace is good. It's beautiful. It warms the house, right? A fire on your stove cooks your food. It's a good thing, but take that fire out of the fireplace, put it in your living room or your bedroom, and you're playing with fire. You burn your house down. Um, but once it goes into that proper context, it becomes a good thing. And so it's like, look, if you can't control this fire in your bedroom, it's because that's not the place for it. You need to put that into the proper context. Now you can allow it to bring the warmth and do what it was designed to do in that proper context. And so what really this comes down to is, okay, so why is God then saying this is wrong. Why do Christians claim that the proper context of sex is only inside marriage between one man and one woman? And so a straight person who has sexual desires can get an outlet for those desires inside of marriage versus the, the homosexual here, as they're mentioning here, doesn't get a pass on those desires. Um, and I, I think this is a really good question, right? And it causes us to stop and go, okay, why? Why would God say this is wrong? If they're in a monogamous, loving, giving Christian relationship, why do we say this is wrong? Now, I think as we take a step back, let me address a couple things before we get there. The question I think that really this comes down to, first of all, and one of the big issues that has to be worked through is, is who do we trust? Right? Who do we trust? And, and I think that as, as, as a Christian, our answer should be, I trust God. Right? I trust what God is, is doing, and I trust what God is saying, and I trust what God has revealed. And if God says something is good for me, then I, I should want to do that because I, I want to trust him rather than trusting culture or even trusting myself. If God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe that he is, that is who I want to put my trust in. Now, I help my students kind of understand this first kind of, I think, important principle as we work through this of trust and talking about them and saying or asking them, when is it that you trust your parents? When your parents ask you to do something, when is it easier? Maybe is that the right way to say it? When is it easier to just do it? And, and it, often the answer is, well, when what they're asking you to do, you know, is something that's good for you to do and often something that you want to do. Right. But when your parents say, I'm sorry, you can't go out on a Friday night. You have to stay home or you need to clean your bedroom or you need to pick up the dog's poop or you need to do something that you don't actually think is good. You think it's a waste of time. You think it's it's not worth it. Then that is when we're more likely to push back because it's like, mom, dad, you're trying to take away my fun. You're trying to ruin my life because what we believe they are asking us to do, we don't actually think is good for us. But when we trust our parents that what they're asking us to do is actually good for us, 
it's easier for us to go along with it. And so I think a, an important thing to come down to as a Christian, our trust has to be on God. We have to say, God, I trust you, even if I don't understand. Right? And this is, as I talk to parents on this, this happens all the time where a parent says, look, you need to do this. And the kids are, but why? Why would I, why should I have to change? Why should I have to do these things? I don't get it. This makes no sense. And at some point we got to say, look, you're too young to get it. Right? Just trust me. Right? And a common story, I, I, you know, that always comes to mind. And I've read the book of Corey Ten Boom, um, I believe it is. But I always kind of remember Greg Kokel is the one who often tells this story to kind of re re reflect on this. But the story of, I, I believe it was Corey Ten Boom on, on a train with her father and reading in the Bible about sexual, sexual, sexual things and saying, uh, Dad, what is this? What is happening here? And the dad says, well, you know, I can tell that later, but, you know, we can't talk about that now. She says, well, what do you mean? Why not? And something like, hey, can you put my luggage up to, you know, can you put my luggage up there on the train? Can you put my luggage up on the overhead bin? She goes, well, no, I can't. It's, it's too heavy. And he said, yeah, the same thing is true with this. This is too heavy for you right now. Right? And we, so we recognize like there are things that are age appropriate. And there are some times where uh, we just don't, uh, we don't have the ability to say, look, um, this is something that's important. And this is something we can talk about, but you just don't have the ability to understand it right now. And you don't get it, but you got to trust me. You got to trust me and that one day maybe you will understand. And so what we have to recognize in this kind of trusting space of, of why this, when, when something looks so good, when something looks like it makes people happy, why not? If, if sex and marriage is a good thing, why wouldn't we want more people to enjoy it? And I think it's here where we have to recognize that God gives us commands about sex not to take away our fun, but to protect us. And to provide for us. Often the, the commands that God is giving us regarding, regarding sexual relationships is to protect us from physical, emotional, and spiritual harm. Right? Again, when I try to work through this with my students, it, it's easy for them to think of examples of relationships and friendships and marriages that have been destroyed because people were not sexually faithful because they were promiscuous, because they went off with someone they should not have been with, because they were doing things they should not have been doing, and it opened them up into vulnerabilities in a relationship that was not designed to protect that vulnerability. And it caused damage, and it caused hurt. And so again, if we don't trust God as a, a good God who loves us and who cares for us, desires the best for us, and a God who gives good gifts, we're going to believe that these restrictions that we see in scripture are to are are taking away our fun that he's trying to ruin us or or make our lives worse rather than recognizing no he gives us this for our protection and to provide for us god wants us to truly flourish and we have to trust that what he is asking us to do is for our good and is for our flourishing so why why only so i as we kind of work through this, okay, so kind of coming back to the comment then, it's what I'm saying is, look, any desire that is a wrong desire, we are called to control. You can't say, and my argument for 1 Peter 2 is you can't say just because I have a desire, therefore I should be able to act on it. We recognize there are desires that we have that are good and you can act on, and there are desires that are wrong and sinful desires that we should not act on. And every single person, no matter who you are, has sinful desires that we ought not act on. 
And so the question that, is that we'll work through and, and that we have to address is why is this a sinful desire of same-sex desires? Why are those sinful versus opposite-sex desires are not always sinful? So when we look at this question, and we're kind of, this is kind of the next part that we're going to jump into, is, is what if they were monogamous, loving, giving Christian relationship? And, and my question is this, of, of why only include they, these categories? Why only include these ingredients? Right. If, if we are trying to figure out the biblical view of sex and marriage and, and God's kind of definition of, of what God has created, well, God has given us more, uh, more categories or more ingredients that's what makes this thing this thing. It kind of reminds me today, I, this is kind of on topic, but slightly off. A student asked today in class, uh, have you heard the argument that it's not sex if you're wearing a condom? because you're not touching skin to skin. There's, there's, there's something between. <laughs> and so therefore it's not actually sex if you're wearing a condom. And I said, I actually have heard that. And then the student said, well, what do you think? I said, I think it's a kind of dumb argument. And, and they said, well, why? And I, and I gave two examples just kind of off the top of my head. I said, okay, so it's like saying, um, I'm not swimming in a pool if I'm wearing a wetsuit or something or assault, right? If you beat someone up, that's physical assault. Well, it's not, I didn't commit assault. I was wearing a glove. My fist never actually touched your face. There was a glove blocking it. And so it was never skin to skin. You see, if we, dis, if we defined assault as it actually has to be skin to skin contact, and therefore if you punch someone in the face, but you're wearing a glove, it's not assault. That would be crazy. And what people could get away with. I didn't actually, I didn't hit you. We, we didn't touch actually. But the question would be like, why are we defining assault in that way. That's not what assault is. In the same way, if we try to define sex as it has to be skin to skin, therefore it's not really sex if we're wearing a condom. It's like, but that's not what sex is. We're defining it in such a narrow, narrow way to try to excuse certain behaviors, right? So if you're a boyfriend and girlfriend and you're in high school and you believe that having sex is wrong, but you want to be able to do things that are intimate, you start to get this very narrow definition of sex and what is actually wrong inside of the relationship so that all these other behaviors become permissible in your mind, but you're still not doing that wrong thing. But the question is, is that really the definition or are we kind of defining things in a way so that we can continue to do the things that we want to do when we should not be doing those things? And I think this is an example of what's happening here is, is we take these characteristics or ingredients of marriage and sex, if you want to call it that, and you say, well, one is monogamous. That's important. But why? Why is monogamy important? Why is loving important? Why is giving important? Um, if we are going to be kind of creating this, um, this kind of goes back to the last video a, a little bit, is if we are going to be creating this kind of definition of, of what to expect or what should happen. Well, why monogamy? Why only have one person at a time? Why not five? Who says? And the question and, and the issue that we have to come back to and biblically speaking is, well, God is the one who created sex. He is the one that made the recipe, so to speak. And so we have to go back to what his recipe is. And it includes monogamy, but it includes more than that. It doesn't stop there. It includes loving, but it includes more than that. And is it possible that when we take some of these ingredients out, that we're radically shaping or, or, or changing this recipe so where we're not actually getting what we intended or what we started with? 
And so that's kind of the question that we look at is what are the ingredients that God has given us? And I think then that allows us to know why the line is drawn where the line is drawn. Now, lastly, here on this uh, comment here, it's um, I, I, I don't hear Christian parents giving this advice. Um, and I would say, yeah, I agree. I think the church has not done a good job of elevating singleness um, and, and showing the beauty and goodness of singleness. I talk about this in my high school class, in my high school class, about how we often elevate marriage and minimize singleness to where we we kind of present this idea and this picture, whether we say it explicitly or not, that singles are are lesser. Um, and marriage is the ultimate standard. You cannot glorify God unless you are married and have kids. And that's a false statement. And so it paints this picture. And we have movies and culture like this too, like the 40-year-old virgin that like, if you're 40 and you're still a virgin, there's there must be something wrong with you. There's something broken. You must be weird or ugly or people don't like you because sex is easy. You can get it anywhere. So if you're still 40 and virgin, there must be something broken or weird about you. And that's a false view. And that's a bad view. I've shared this, I think, on here before, but I remember uh, as a single man at a job working and someone getting married who was sitting next to me and a Christian person congratulated this, this other person that got married and said, congratulations, now you're a real man. And I desperately wanted to look at that person and say, so what does that make me? If he, now that he's married, is a real man, what does that say about me who's not married at that time? Am I not a real man? Yeah, so I would agree. We often don't hear Christians talking about the beauty and goodness of singleness. It has happened more lately, but it's only happened maybe in one sense because there's been a big push of, okay, if you're calling gay people to be single, but then you paint singleness as this lesser life of misery, then what are you calling them to? And we have to realize, oh my goodness, that's not what singleness is. There's a beauty and goodness. Paul calls this a gift. So moving on, as we kind of look then at this, the next part of this argument says, yeah, um, kind of jumping over this. Um, I'm glad that you recognize that just because a person believes that um, same-sex acts are sinful does not mean that person is homophobic or hates gay people. Um, absolutely. There are some that uh, express this in a inappropriate and hateful and, um, and rude way. But there are a lot of Christians who desperately want to share this truth in love, who are caring and, and, and loving in doing it. And simply having an idea does not mean you hate the person that you are, that, that you're addressing, like in this comment. Um, it says both camps, uh, there are trying, are people trying to understand scripture and make sense of it to apply it to our lives. And for some, it's not clear why it is wrong. All of their teachings seem to have much more clarity, more sense. It fits into the overall picture. We know it's not because the children, Paul said it would be better to be single. Clearly not having children was fine by him. And I see that comment just came in in the live chat. St. Paul says it's better to be like him. Yeah, we, we can look back at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 and, and see this where Paul is talking about. Uh, let's see if it'll pull up here. There we go. Um, right. Uh, it better, it's good for them to remain single as I am. Right. And he's saying, look, it's, it's good. Singleness is a good thing. It's a gift. But also there's a goodness to be married. Right. For those who are married, I charge these things like the Lord, not just, you know, so it's like singleness is good. Marriage is good. Hey, I, and Paul's like, hey, I, I want you to have what I have. I want you to to recognize that this good thing that I have. Um, but there's also this good of marriage for those who are called to that. 
And so again, kind of based on this, like we can't say it's, it's, you know, uh, you, you have to get married, right? You don't, right? As Paul kind of puts here, um, that uh, he does not demand that everyone has to remain single, but he says, yeah, each one has this good gift. Um, both marriage and celibacy have their benefits and both should be considered gifts. Paul is happy, right? Paul is not mad about the gift that he has. Paul is not upset by it. He's happy that God has given this, him this gift and he is content in that gift. And he wants other people to recognize the goodness of the and the contentedness that you can have in that gift as well. Um, but recognizing um, that not everyone has this or they have that gift at a time and that some people receive the gift of marriage as well. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, where is the comment? Okay, so I agree with you. There must be a line, but where is that line? We can see how pedophilia, polygamy have their issues. What is inherently so wrong about same sex? And what if all other parameters of same sex couples is spot on with what Christians should be or do? Why is the extra criteria? Why would the criteria, why would that criteria mess up everything? Um, <clears throat> thank you, Matthew, for that comment. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, why is the line drawn where it is? Now, again, I want to kind of go back to what we discussed here just a minute ago. We can see how pedophilia and polygamy, etc., have their issues. Why? Who can see that? There's a lot of people arguing that they don't have their issues. There's a lot of people arguing that they don't have their issues because once we remove that objective line saying here is the boundaries for sex and the boundary becomes love is love or this do what you want, then there are people advocating for pedophilia and polygamy. Why should I have to stop at one person? Why monogamy? The moment our recipe for what ingredients are, are necessary to have a good, morally good sexual relationship and marriage, once we say, no, it is completely subjective, it is relative, it is based on personal preferences and personal opinions and culture, then all we have to do is say, well, I don't like that ingredient, right? And, and we want to treat sex like pizza, where we just put the ingredients on it that we like. And you don't like, you know, olives, take them off. You don't like pepperoni, take them off. You like mushrooms, put those on. And we can just make it however we want it. And so the question is, if we're going to treat sex and marriage like a pizza, where you just pick and choose the ingredients that you like, and you like consent, and you like monogamy, and you like, you know, permanence, but someone else says, you know, I don't want permanence. I want this to be open-ended and do whatever you want. Or I don't want monogamy. I want five people. The question is, why can't they have it that way? By what standard do you have to say, no, that's actually wrong? And the moment we start treating our sexual relationships like pizza, like a subjective, relative, moral thing, then you can't say that's wrong. And so, yeah, I would say that we, most people can still recognize that there is something wrong about pedophilia and polygamy, but you can only say it's wrong if there's an objective standard to say, look, this is breaking this rule. This is breaking the way it's supposed to be. And so this leads us back to that original question. Is sex and marriage something that is designed or something that is created by us? Right? Is a pizza that we create, we get to make it how we like it. We can make it however we want it. If we don't even like pizza, you don't have to eat it. But if you want it, you can make it however you want. Or, you know, it's like, it's like Monopoly, how I normally put this as I learned from Sean McDowell, is, is sex and marriage more like Monopoly where we made the rules. The rules are kind of arbitrary, 
Do you get $200 when you pass go or 500? And if you don't like them, you make your house rules and you can change them however you want. Or is sex and marriage something like gravity that we did not create, but we discovered that God created? And no matter what you believe or not believe about gravity, no matter what you want to change or not change, um, it's not going away and it's not changing. And the biblical view is that God has designed and created sex, not us. And we are discovering what he has done. He is revealing what he has done to us. He's the one that made the recipe. He's the one that made put the ingredients in. He's the one that made the rules. And we don't just get to change it. And he's made those rules as we talk about as a good, loving God who's not trying to take away our fun, but wants the best for us. God knows how to then use it in a way that is best for all of us. That's what we have to recognize here. And so when we look at it, we say, okay, why has God made sex like this? Why these ingredients? The first thing we have to realize, I think there's three main purposes of sex. And by the way, uh, there's a great book that talks about this. I'm getting some of this from um, Chasing Love by Sean McDowell. I had him on the show when this book came out a while ago. You can go back and find that interview. I'll post it below as well. Maybe afterwards, put a little thing that pops up in the corner over here um, on this book. Uh, but Sean lays out three reasons, three primary purposes for sex. And number one is procreation. The first purpose that God created sex for, why did God make it? Is for procreation. We get this right here out of Genesis chapter 28, right at the very beginning. God blesses Adam and Eve and says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And he goes on. Right, the first thing we see here is the purpose of sex is for procreation. This also should be seen clearly in the biological functions of the reproductive system that we each, each gender has half of. Men have half of the reproductive system. Women have half of the reproductive system. It's the only thing that you don't have the complete system of. You don't have a complete nervous system, or you do have a complete nervous system, a complete digestive system, a complete you know, skeletal system and muscular system, and everything else is complete. But the reproductive system, you only have half of. God has designed this system where men and women each have half to when they come together, they complete that row that reproductive system and allow for the possibility of procreation. God designed this. He could have made it to where we could make babies without having to come together. But one of the purposes of procre of sex is procreation, right? We are oriented towards procreation as men and women coming together, even if a child does not result, right? So there's still an orientation towards this. This is a, the, the proper function of that biological system is children, even if a child does not always happen, right? Sometimes there are fertility issues where people cannot have kids, but still that coming together of that system is oriented towards procreation. And here's why this is important. God created this activity for procreation and same-sex couples cannot engage in procreative sex with one another because their bodies aren't oriented towards procreation, right? There's a big difference between an action that fails to produce the intended outcome, like a man and a woman coming together and failing to produce a child because their bodies are, are the, rather than one that cannot produce the outcome because of its very nature. You see, our culture wants to say this idea of procreation is irrelevant. Pull that out of the recipe. God is saying, no, this is the first reason I even created this, is procreation. And this type of relationship does not have it, right? It does not have the even the ability 
by the very nature of what it is to fulfill the first purpose that God has created sex for. And so this would be a really key ingredient that is often just taken out and treated as if it is arbitrary. But then something like monogamy, we want to say, well, that's not arbitrary. That's important. Well, why? Says who? Right. Again, in a similar sense, and this is not great because it's another game that we have created, not something that we discovered. But it's like saying, you know, I want to go play, you know, basketball. But, you know, this whole rule about you can't kick the ball or you got to dribble it with your hands. Like, I just want to kick it around. It's like, well, you can't kick it. You can't just take that rule out. You're, you're, you're going against the rules. This is how you have to play the game. If you want to kick the ball, go play soccer. It's like, well, I want to play soccer, but I want to touch it with my hands. I want to pick it up and run. It's like, <laughs> that's not the game. And so we recognize that these are, we, we are playing by the rules that are given to us. And we can't just say, well, I just don't like this rule and kind of take it out. So the first purpose of sex and why God has created it and what he's created it for is procreation. One that only the coming together of a man and a woman can do. The second thing that we recognize here that scripture teaches us in the next part of Genesis, the very next chapter, is the second purpose of sex is unity. Genesis 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, there is this unifying aspect, this one flesh union that is created when a man and a woman come together in that procreative act of having sex. Again, I think that this is uh, huge because, uh, again, God is kind of creating this context of marriage to bring a man and a woman together so that when a kid is produced, there's both a mom and a dad. Right? My wife and I have noticed this very clearly in the five months that we have been raising our son that, my goodness, it is a lot of work for two of us. Right? This has given me so much more compassion and, my, and, and understanding for single parents. Like, my goodness, how do you do it? Or for parents who have twins, it's like, how are you doing this with two at once? I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe it. It's crazy. It's hard enough to do this with one. Um, but how needed both the mother and the father are. And so what's also cool is not only do we see Scripture and God saying, look, I've created sex to come together in the act of procreation, but also to create unity between the man and the woman. They become one flesh, leave their father and mother. This is now a new family, but there's also a bio, a neurochemical um, thing that God has created us to uh, with as well, where there's a neurochemical level of connection that happens with chemicals released in the brain and you being able to connect with the person that you are with. And so God has designed sex to bond the man and his wife together for life. Right? That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, you know, from the very beginning, have you not heard that God created them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And therefore, that which God has joined together, let man not separate. God has brought, in Jesus' words, husband and wife together in this unifying relationship. And so there's a permanence that is involved here, as well as exclusivity. Now, the biggest issue here as well. And I think one key that I talk about in my interview with Sean McDowell on the book, Chasing Love, if you're interested, I'll put the link to the video as well at the end, um, is, uh, is the third point that he mentions here and most people often regard or disregard as well. And that is the third purpose of sex is a foreshadowing of heaven. The purpose of sex is a foreshadowing of heaven. 
You see, marriage has existed since the creation. Genesis chapter one, right? Not a cultural thing that we created and we get to make whatever we want, but marriage has existed since the creation, Genesis one and two, God's creation, to point us to this mysterious union between Christ and the church, right? We see this clearly spelled out in Ephesians chapter five, right? Where Paul writes, for because we are, uh, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right there, quoting back to Genesis chapter two, what we just read. This mystery is profound, Paul says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife of himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And we see scripture painting this Christ, the picture of Christ and the church, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Right? And we, we start in scripture with this marriage and we end with this marriage of the bride of Christ coming to him. And so we see marriage and sex is, is to foreshadow what will happen in heaven of the bride and the bridegroom. And we see here, Paul talking about it's this, it is a gendered relationship. Gender is important here. And I think that one thing that we often miss and why we kind of ask this question uh, back here of saying, okay, what's so inherently wrong about this is what's wrong is it's going against God's design, right? And, and that is and how we understand good and wrong, bad, bad and good, you know, wrong and, and right, right? If God's nature is the, the, the standard of goodness, and then his commands are an expression of what we should do come flowing out of his nature, which is the standard of goodness. And sin is that which corrupts or sin is the absence of good. Sin is that which deviates from the good. Then we know that sin is going against what God has designed. Right. In the same way, and I always use this example right here is my iPhone. Uh, there's a design for this. There's a way in which this phone is designed to be used. And that and if I use it how it was designed to be used, then it's a good use. But if I use this as a skipping rock or a baseball bat or a tennis racket, I'm going to damage it. That would be a bad thing because it's not designed to do those things. And so if God is designing sex for the purposes of procreation, unity, and a foreshadowing of heaven of what Christ is going to do in bringing his bride to him as the bridegroom, and we then say, well, what's wrong about same-sex relationships? We would say, well, because it goes against what God has designed. It's going against what God has given us. And that is the definition of sin. And so culture has really lost this transcendent meaning. This is not something that is often really talked about. That phone. <laughs> um, instead, we think sex is just the thing that makes us happy. We just, this is just what makes me happy. This is just a, right. This is just a, a normal everyday thing. Like, like the sex is just like any other physical activity. Right. And, and my students, I, we talk about this as well. It's like, you, you clearly know that's false. You know, it's not like normal everyday activity, right? Because if, if your friend forces you to play video games, that's just a bad friend. They force you to have sex. Now they're raping. Like th there's a big difference. Sexual assault versus physical assault. Like well, there's a big difference between these things. And we recognize there's something deeper and more intimate and more special. There's a vulnerability that comes with it. It's not just like any other physical activity that you do with someone else. That's exactly why if your girlfriend goes and studies with another guy, you're probably not going to be very upset. But if your girlfriend goes and sleeps with another guy, you're probably going to be upset. Or if your boyfriend runs off with another woman, 
to go play a game of tennis, <laughs> probably not a big deal, right? Runs off another woman to sleep with her. You get the point. But we've lost this transcendent meaning, right? We, we try to say, well, this is something that everyone does. It's just this basic brute kind of fact of reality. It's just this natural instinct and, and there's no big deal with it. But we, we know deep down, this is what is so important. We know deep down there's something more. And there's this transcendent then meaning that God is giving us this to point us to something far greater, to point us to something far better. You see, we, we have to also recognize is that there is no sex and marriage in heaven. But we, we want to take this temporary thing that God has given us that is good and try to make it bigger than it should be. Like if, if we think we need sex to be satisfied in life, that the call to singleness is, is too much to bear without being able to be married in sex, well, then what is, what is your view, Christian, at, of heaven? If as a Christian, we think that life without marriage or sex is miserable, what do we think heaven will be like? Well, Jesus says you don't be neither given or received in marriage. It's not happening there. Sex and marriage is a beautiful but temporary thing that God has given us that is a foreshadowing of something far greater yet to come. So if we want to take this beautiful picture that God has given us and boil it down to not this beautiful picture, start to remove some of the ingredients that God has put into it, I think this is where it starts to create some of these problems. I guess it's time to move on. The because God said so doesn't feel like a Bible argument. Where else the explanation of Bible, biblical teaching is because God said so? Maybe there are, and I just haven't spotted them. Um, there are other examples of this. And this is not a bad question because what, what I think that sometimes maybe this is pointing out is that this idea of, well, because God said so, can be inappropriate in two ways. Number one is if we don't want to look into evidence, right? We don't want to have to investigate something. And we use this as kind of this cop out of, well, that's what God said. That's what God did. And therefore I don't have to think about it any deeper. This keeps our knowledge and our learning at a minimum and is not a good response. It's also not a good response uh, to say, well, because God said so, as if it's just like this arbitrary thing, right? And so sometimes parents do this, right? Where they have this very arbitrary rule and, and then the, the student kind of pushes back or the kid pushes back and says, but, but why do we have this rule? Because I said so. And rather than trying to have to think through like, why is my re what is my reason for having this rule? Why, why is this there? Um, I don't want to have to explain it. I don't want to have to give it because it really does make no sense. It's just, I just made it up. And so, well, because I'm just going to throw down my authority because I said so. <laughs> there, though, is an appropriate way of saying because I said so. Because a parent, a teacher, God is in a position as a hard authority to say because I said so. You just need to do what I say because I'm in that position of authority. Now, hopefully there's a reason we're saying so. And as I've already pointed out before, I think there is with God. It's not to take away your fun. It's to protect us, to lead to our flourishing. But we have to recognize again that the, the God's commands here, because he says so, is not just this arbitrary thing. It's commands that are intended for our good. And as we already talked about, kids don't always understand why a parent is making a rule. But if you have a good parent, there is a level of trust that the, what they're doing is good. It's a loving thing. 
I think we also have to recognize is that sometimes we, we fall into this category of this very pragmatic ethic where we judge the morality of an action based on the social or practical consequences. Where if we don't see the practical consequence of something, we don't think it's bad. Right? And this is often, again, how kids respond to parents, where a parent says, look, this is wrong. You should not do it. And the kid said, but I did it and I didn't see any practical consequences. So why is it wrong? I had a student tell me this. A student came up to me after an event that I did a few years back and said, okay, my parents and my pastors always tell me that smoking weed and drinking alcohol and getting drunk is wrong, that it will destroy my friendships. It will make me fail my classes. My grades will drop. But guess what? I smoked weed and I got drunk and I still have good grades and I still have my friends. So why is it wrong? This was the question asked. My response back was not to try to give more pragmatic things of here are some actual consequences to try to help you see. My question back to him was, why do you judge the morality of smoking weed and drinking alcohol and getting drunk as a teenager on the consequences? Why do you see that? We, we, we know that most of the time, bad things produce bad results and good things produce good results. But there are things that make us feel good and good things that that seem good to us that actually have a bad result. There are things that maybe lead in a bad place that we don't actually see, we're not aware of. And again, that is where trust comes in, right? Flip over to the book of Proverbs, right? Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now notice just two chapters later, chapter 16, as I scroll down, the exact same thing is mentioned. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And I think the question here is, look, it seems right. There doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with this. It seems like what I'm trying to do is okay. I don't see any immediate issue with this. Therefore, why is it wrong? And we have to trust that even though some things may seem right to us, if God is saying, look, this is wrong, then it's going to lead to our death and we need to stay away. I asked my students uh, this last week as we're kind of reviewing for finals. Finals are coming up. Summer is coming up. And it's like, why is it that we we pay more attention to the, uh, we're reviewing our entertainment chapter. Why do we pay more attention to the physical food that we put into our body than we do the ideas that we put into our minds? And it's easy for them, again, to recognize because, well, the food that we ingest can have an immediate negative result. It can make you sick and you don't want to be sick. It sucks to have food poisoning. So you don't want to just eat anything. We also see eating unhealthy and how it puts on weight and gets us out of shape and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't want that. But we don't often see the negative impact of bad ideas and bad entertainment on our minds. And so then we often don't care as much. So I think it's important here that we recognize is God is giving us these commands. And even if we don't see a practical negative or an immediate negative consequence, pragmatism is not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic is based on who God is. We want to believe and think that freedom is going our own way, that when we can do whatever we want to do, that is what is truly free. But we recognize that when we go our own way, that scripture says over and over again is that the wrath of God comes against those who go their own way rather than following Christ. Freedom is not doing whatever you want to do and going your own way. Freedom is doing what you should do. 
And so when we look at this issue, it seems clear in scripture that the Bible never considers sexual immorality an agree to disagree issue. It's not like, well, you have your thoughts and I have my thoughts and you know, kind of agree to disagree. It doesn't see it that way. It is very clear in what God has is presenting and why he is presenting the line where it is. And so I hope that um, this has helped in this first part. Now, there's a second part of this question, so don't go away. <laughs> I hope this has helped to kind of think through uh, kind of more in what we talked about before. Again, if you want more of the work through the, the Bible passages, you can go back to the other video or the other podcast uh, from back in January of 2021. I forget what it's called. I'll have to get that for you later. But, um, you know, this just specifically looking at, okay, so why has God drawn this here? And I think these are three reasons that God has created sex for, and it's for our good and for our protection. Now, the last part of this comment, again, if there are questions, comments that you want to put in the live chat there, or you want to call in and have a brief conversation, we're getting close to our time. Um, but if you want us to uh, talk, we can still talk, is um, a slightly different point. But the second point, right, at the very beginning, they said there are two points uh, that are in kind of a, a that I can maybe explain and, and kind of clarify. And so hopefully I've clarified point one. You can always comment back and, and let me know how I did and if there's other questions that you still have. Uh, but point number two was this, um, said around the 22 minute mark in the previous video, uh, you say animals have natural instincts. For example, the cat kills the mouse, but we don't shame the cat. So you're saying that one might have the natural instinct to have a same sex attraction, but because we are not animals, we get to control our natural instincts. This argument is opposite from Paul. Paul uses natural to say that it is in our nature to be heterosexual. And when men and women go astray, God turns them to unnatural desires. Is that correct? From Romans 1.26. And so we can pull that up here really quick, right? That is where, what Paul is talking about here in Romans 1.26, um, where it says, uh, therefore God gave them up. Uh, nope, just kidding right there. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. And so the question kind of coming back here on this is, okay, uh, if we're going to make this kind of natural argument, um, would I also advocate for men not having long hair? Or is this optional? First Corinthians eleven fourteen says, does not even nature teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? So let me pull this one up. There's first Corinthians 11, 14 right there. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him. And so I think kind of the question here is, is okay. Um, Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 11, says, nature teaches you it's a shame for a man to wear long hair. Romans chapter 1 says, nature teaches you it's wrong for uh, a man to be with a man. And so are we going to say both of these are maybe relative? And so if we say, well, you don't have to follow uh, 1 Corinthians 11 anymore, that's just cultural, well, then is it possible that Romans chapter 1 is also cultural? And if you're going to claim that Romans chapter 1 is not cultural because it's grounded in nature, therefore it's objective, then wouldn't 1 Corinthians 11 also be grounded in nature and therefore objective? I think this is an incredible question. And unfortunately, I've left like five minutes to kind of work through it. Uh, but here's what we have to recognize is just because the same word is used, nature or natural, does not necessarily mean the exact same thing. So there's a lot more in this. Uh, Robert Gagnon wrote the book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, the text and hermeneutics. And I just want to share a few things from this that he talks about here. He says, uh, firstly, uh, this is on page 300. 
and 62. He says, the truth is that the ancients classify some things as natural, which we would likewise attribute to nature, and some things as natural, which we would regard as conventional or cultural. Each case has to be handed down individually or has to be handled individually to determine whether the terms natural and nature in any given author are being completely correctly applied from a contemporary perspective, right? So just because Paul is using these two terms in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 11, we have to see, okay, does he refer to natural being based in nature or natural as more cultural practice? Um, now he goes on on page 368 and says, in fact, Paul regards sexual intercourse as such an obvious violation of the natural order that Gentiles who do not know scripture are without excuse when they engage in such a behavior. That's what we see uh, in Romans chapter one, right? Because right before it says the people are without excuse, that God's nature, his divine attributes are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And then goes in, so they gave up these things and exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. And so it says here, it says on lexical grounds, there is little basis for claiming that Paul's reference to nature referred to contingent cultural norms. So when you look at the context of Romans chapter one, there is not a lexical ground or a uh, textual reason to assume that this is cultural in the way that God, that, that Paul is talking about nature here. When he's talking about going against nature, he's talking about basic biological functions, the way our bodies are designed to function. That is the context of Romans chapter one. So he said, look, men are designed in a certain way to fit with women, right? That is what is natural. And you're exchanging these natural relationships. That is what that which is biological for that which is unnatural. And so it seems like, and Gagnon is saying here in Romans chapter one, the context is pointing to this idea that it is not this cultural um, uh, subjective thing, but rather that which is uh, based on nature. Now, what's interesting, though, is when you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you look at this idea of talking about hair and recognizing um, this is something, right? As Paul, let me pull the verse back up here in a second. All right, here we go. Um, he's talking about wearing long hair. And he says here, um, establishes that Paul, long hair on women was an inference that could be drawn from direct observation from nature, right? So you can just see that you can observe from nature that women have long hair, right? That's what you look at culture. So I think in a similar sense, uh, you could interpret 1 Corinthians 11 to say, look, nature teaches you that it, you drive on the right side of the road in America, right? You can just look out. You don't need anything crazy. You look and just by basic observations of what is happening around you, you can see that you're supposed to drive on the right side of the road, right? But that's a cultural practice because there's nothing objective about what side of the road that you drive on because you go over to, to England and nature will teach you that you drive on the left side of the road, right? Because that is what is happening there. And so we have this kind of cultural practice um, because when we look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11 here about hair, there is nothing biologically innate like women can grow hair and men can't or women naturally can grow longer hair than men can grow. Right? There's nothing uh, separated here as far as that which is natural as far as hair growth. There's not a different designed bodily function and anatomical difference like we see with the Romans 1 passage related to sexual relationship where there's, or there is that difference, right, in Romans 1. And there's not that here 
in 1 Corinthians 11, where both men and women have the ability to grow hair. And so um, we see this being more of, my alarm just went off to cool down my son's room for bedtime and to make coffee so that I don't have to ground my beans <laughs> while he's asleep in the morning. Now, what Gagnon goes on as well, and I think this is very interesting and kind of the last point here is um, talking about, um, he says, uh, Paul himself seems to have recognized uh, this point is hardly self-evident, right? As he talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, he adds this argument. Um, uh, he adds this argument from nature only after making several other pleas, including the cryptic because of the angels. He also immediately adds another appeal to ecclesiastical custom since he suspects the Corinthians will not find his logic convincing, right? Contrast the argument from nature in Romans 1, 26 and 27, which is the only argument Paul needs in so much as the uh, complementarity of male and female sex organs is obvious and convincing. And he says, my only point here is that for Paul, physis or physis means nature in the strict sense, although inferences Paul draws from nature have been evaluated on a case have to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. So um, when we see this, now Gagnon goes on and some other things that I think is kind of interesting of you also can kind of know uh, based on nature uh, that he talked about of like, it's natural for men to be bald uh, and men not to have hair versus if a woman is bald, you see that more as like, okay, there must be some sort of medical reason because that's not normal. That's not a normal thing uh, to happen. And so he kind of goes on to natural and different things like that. But again, the recognition that, look, we're not talking about fundamentally different biological functions between men and women because we both grow hair. Romans chapter one is different there. And so I do think uh, that as we come back to this question, uh, I, I don't think it's wrong for men to have long hair. I do think that we're talking about cultural practices here, a cultural practice that you can see from nature. This is how men are acting here. And you can learn what is natural or what is custom. Um, but again, we have to evaluate this on a case by case basis. Last question that you mentioned here, and I think is interesting because it also comes up in the first Corinthian passage. Um, and I have, I had more examples of this and I forgot to pull them up because I'm uh, short on time as I was getting ready today. But do I believe the authors, uh, believe the authors, Paul, for example, may have injected his bias, not necessarily in regards to homosexuality, but any of his teachings, or is it all 100% inspired by God? Well, when we look at first Corinthians, for example, the first one we talked about first Corinthians chapter seven, we see Paul saying, uh, to the married, I give this charge, uh, not I, but the Lord clearly saying this is from God. And then like in verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother does these things. And so uh, Paul seems to say that, yes, he is led by the Holy Spirit. He is giving these things. But then he still sometimes draws this distinction of, I'm saying this, uh, not the Lord, uh, versus the Lord says this. Now, often it is, uh, I think, uh, based on this kind of oral tradition, uh, based on something that Jesus has said. Right. And so he's he's going off of the disciples, his relationship with them. The disciples have said this. This is scripture. And so I can say the Lord is saying this. But when get, Paul is giving his kind of new uh, teachings, uh, then he then says, OK, but um, I say this, not the Lord. And he's then kind of giving his understanding. Um, but I don't think that in those times he's just simply giving his personal bias to where he could be wrong. 
right? He is, Scripture still does seech, and Jesus kind of points out that those who, who write would be led by the Holy Spirit to write that which is accurate. And so Paul carefully distinguishes between the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and Paul's own, Paul's own understanding of how Jesus' words would apply to a new situation. Um, but I do believe here uh, it is still seen as authoritative and aspired. It is not simply just human wisdom. So hopefully that kind of addresses that last point. But again, guys, uh, as we kind of wrap up our time here, um, I love doing videos like this because again, I, I think not only is it really important for me to, to think through these things and to teach you that which I believe is well thought out, is well reasoned for, and has good biblical reason, not simply just my personal opinion, but I also uh, am nervous but excited to be able to share it here and to uh, let you kind of evaluate that and let kind of get that peer review and let you push back on some of those things and then allow me to clarify and work through and address other issues that didn't get to address too. And that's what I love about having personal conversations. That's what I love about having people uh, being able to sit down face to face and talk through things, um, but um, uh, is not often as easy to have happen here on YouTube and podcast, however you are enjoying this show. So um, with that, let me just end, if you are interested, a couple of things, uh, kind of looking into the future a little bit uh, for those who are interested. Um, and, and then... Um and then I'll kind of sign off. So with that, I'm getting really, really close to the end of my school year, which means a busy, busy summer. Um, I will give more dates and more information later when I give the update on the new ministry, ThinkWell, that is happening uh, and should be done here by the end of May. That is my goal, that everything is done and finished by the end of May, because in June, my wife and I and my son hit the road and have a busy summer. We are going to about seven different conferences, camps, and trips. I will be giving about 32 different lectures at the different events. I think of my 64 day summer, we're on the road for 42 of the 64 days traveling to Colorado, Florida, Utah, and different parts of California. And so all that to be said, I'm super excited. I would love your prayers. We would love your prayers. It's going to be new this summer traveling with our five month old son. It'll be six months when we start all these adventures. And so we're super, super looking forward to it. Um, Again, I'd be excited to take them to different camps and, and just hang out with students and, and work through issues and a lot of fun stuff. And so I'll give you more information on those trips as we get closer and kind of what's happening so you can have specifics to pray about that. But I would just love to have that uh, in your mind, in your prayers, and for you to be praying for us as a family as we head off and do these things. With that also means that when we're on the road, there's not going to be as much YouTube things happening. But my goal is that when we are back in town, that I can be able to produce some content and continue to help you think well about that which is going on around you and that which scripture teaches. And so that is always my goal. That is my desire. Um, and so it just, uh, sometimes I'm off at camps and helping students think well. Other times I'm, at, I'm doing a conference. Uh, again, uh, you can always check my website. Uh, that'll pop up here. Uh, where's my ending? Is this my ending? There it is. Uh, my schedule uh, th is there because some of the events are open to the public. And so if you want to stop by and come check out, like if you're in Torrance, uh, the end of June, I'm going to be doing a three-day conference at a church down in Torrance, California, uh, that you can come check out. I think that's open to the public. Um, but as well as then when we're in town, just trying to pre-create some content and have some fun. And so shows are going to be all over the place. But I feel like if you're still here, 
you've gotten used to shows being all over the place because I am not as consistent as I once was. But um, I'm looking forward to it. And I just thank you uh, for trusting me in this time. I know uh, uh, there's a lot of voices uh, that are out there and speaking and, and helping you think well. And there's a lot of amazing voices. And just so I just thank you for taking the time and, and listening to me. And I hope that what I have has been an encouragement to you. And again, as always, if you want to share this with those uh, that you know on social media and whatnot, that would just be a huge blessing to help kind of spread the word and and um, and help other kind of people learn about what uh, is going on here and helping address some of those questions. So with that, thank you, Slam, for being here. Matthew, for being here. Kelby, for being here. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being here. Continue to think deeply and think well about Christianity, God, Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. God bless. See you all later. Bye, everybody. Hesitate to follow